At the beginning of March, Eric Schwartz was in Poland, watching Ukrainians cross the border to flee the Russian invasion. Schwartz, who earned his master's degree from the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, is president of Refugees International, an independent advocacy organization started in 1979 that elevates the voices of global refugees and pushes for policy solutions. Schwartz has had a long career in human rights and refugee policy work, including as U.S. Se Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration during the Obama administration. He spoke with Paw from Maryland, where his organization is advocating for Ukrainian refugees, as well as others in crisis situations around the world. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. So what are you seeing and hearing from the people fleeing Ukraine? Well, um, we were in uh, Poland uh, from March 3rd through March 9th. And um, Poland is, uh, is hosting the majority of the refugees who are coming over from Ukraine. What we're hearing is that people, what we heard was that people are, were leaving very uh, desperate uh, situations and circumstances. Um, the, um, uh, the Russian military and the Russian government are engaged in a concerted campaign of um, attacking civilian uh, institutions and civilians uh, surrounding uh, cities and making life miserable in, in violation of the, the laws of, of, of war. And as a result, uh, you know, uh, people who we got to talk to, mostly, not mostly, but exclusively women from Ukraine, because they represent uh, the overwhelming, they and children represent the overwhelming majority of refugees. And what we heard were the terrible stories about people whose children's schools were destroyed, people who had to take shelter in bathrooms or in basements while uh, attacks took place against uh, civilian institutions, apartment buildings and the like, and uh, just a very, a very difficult and desperate uh, situation. <clears throat> we visited four border crossing points. In each one of those points, um, uh, people were very determined uh, to get on to other parts of, of Europe, um, but they were also very tired, very dispirited, and certainly not wanting to, to leave their country of origin. As they're leaving, are these people planning to be gone forever, or are they thinking that they're going to be able to come back someday? Well, it's, it's hard to know uh, what people are, are really thinking uh, and feeling, uh, but the the individuals with whom we spoke uh, clearly uh, wanted to be back in Ukraine, and I think had uh, some ex some strong expectations that they would be able to return sometime soon. But I also think that in these circumstances, there's a an awful lot of of uncertainty. People just don't know. Thankfully, uh, the the governments of the European Union have, um, and the European Union itself has issued a temporary uh, a protection directive that will give Ukrainians and, and some non-Ukrainians as well, who fled Ukraine, the opportunity to, to live and to work in uh, European Union countries for up to three years, uh, one year at a time. The directive is initially for a year, but it could be up to three years. And that's very good news. 
the large majority of people who were crossing into Poland, um, you know, had a sense of where they where they wanted to go, uh, either uh, to connect with relatives, uh, with friends, and and uh, at the time of our trip, about uh, about a week or so ago, it seemed as though a significant majority of people had some place to go, but there were people who were going onward. In fact, we met, I believe it was in the town of Shemesha. Uh, we were at a, at a sort of a makeshift, um, I believe that was the town, um, one of the border areas that we visited. And we met, um, you know, um, a, a fellow from Finland, some folks from Germany, others from the Czech Republic, all of whom were there to, to transport Ukrainians who wanted to go to those countries, who might want to go to those countries. And there was a lot of that. There is a lot of that happening. Well, that's heartening, at least, to hear that maybe they're, you know, that they're getting a welcome. It's it's very heartening. I, I, I would just say that, you know, it, it is very heartening. It's very encouraging, the, the general response thus far, although the issue of, of how long the response will be sustained is an important one. Uh, but the response so far has been um, has been very encouraging on the refugee side. There are two issues that I think have to be mentioned. The first is that you know the generosity that we're seeing uh, from uh, European governments and um, civil society governments in particular, for the purpose that I'm about to describe, you know, has not always uh, you know been reflected in other refugee situations. Um, whether it's uh, Afghans um, or third country nationals from countries in Africa or Syrians, uh, with the exception, of course, of the response by the government of Germany several years ago, many years ago. You know, we haven't always seen that level of generosity coming from European governments. And the answer, of course, is not to diminish the level of, uh, of, of generosity and support that we're seeing for Ukrainian refugees, uh, the the answer, of course, is to is to ensure that that level of generosity is matched in other refugee situations, and that European governments promote this principle of humanity that the suffering of anyone, uh, no matter where they're from, uh, should command the attention of humankind. And so that's one issue that, for those who are concerned about humanitarianism. And um, and welcoming the stranger, you know, as 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 happy, as encouraging as you can, you know, as as encouraging as it is to see this response in Europe, there is this sort of nagging feeling that okay, now we have to do better by refugee populations everywhere. So that's one issue that I think is very important. And the second issue that is is extremely important is the situation within Ukraine. That. Um, you know, that um, the far more uh, dire humanitarian uh, situation from my perspective, and not to diminish uh, the suffering of people who have to flee their homes and have to cross borders. I certainly don't want to diminish uh, the importance of appreciating that degree of suffering. But, but, the, but the more dire humanitarian situation right now is within the borders of Ukraine. Uh, at this point, it's estimated that upwards of 2 million people are internally displaced within the country. That figure may be low. The UN's appeal estimates that over the course of three months, that number could be as high as 6.7 million. 
the Russian tactics of bombardment, of, of laying siege to cities uh, and bombarding civilian institutions, schools, hospitals, that is creating enormous suffering. And the challenge, putting aside the challenge of getting the Russians to stop this terrible, uh, this terrible offensive and to comply with the rules of, of, of warfare, and, and there are rules in warfare, you don't wantonly attack civilians. Putting those issues aside just for a second, you know, the challenge for, you, for the humanitarian assistance community will be to provide critical assistance to these millions of Ukrainians who are already in dire need. And right now, the United Nations, private agencies, international voluntary organizations, they're all sort of gearing up for this challenge, but it is going to be significant uh, and substantial. I think those are two really important points. Um, I want to come back to your first one about other refugee crises, because I think that that's a really important piece of this. But really quickly, just to jump on the second point you made about this humanitarian situation happening within Ukraine, when you talk about people who are internally displaced, can you give me a sense of what that looks like? Because I think it's really important to sort of understand what is it? Are we talking about people who like their home is bombed and so they're staying with friends? They're staying, where are they? Are they staying in shelters, schools? You know, what? how are they getting food? Can you tell me anything about what, what that looks like from what you know? Well, typically, you know, um, there are circumstances and situations where people who are internally displaced are in camps, are in encampments. But typically that's not the way it happens in a majority of cases. And and people who are, you know, if you're displaced, it means you're 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 outside your home. You know, you can be staying in temporary facilities, you can be staying with friends, you can be on the run. There are just a, a variety of, of circumstances um, that internally displaced uh, uh, people can find themselves in, especially in a situation of uh, significant conflict and one that is sort of rapidly evolving. I can't tell you where the upwards of 2 million um, uh, Ukrainians who are internally displaced right now are situated. There may be some encampments, in, especially in areas uh, like Western Ukraine, in and around Lviv, but I don't, I don't really have that information. I'm not saying it's not available. I just, I just don't know it. Yeah, no problem. Let's go back to your your point then about other refugee situations. Your organization, Refugees International, is working in a bunch of different places around the globe. These places are not getting the news media attention that Ukraine is. I don't think they were getting it even before the Ukraine conflict started. So can you tell us where else is there a crisis that you guys are, are looking at? Well, I think, um, you know, maybe in some respects, the most significant uh, displacement crisis crisis that we've we've seen in in recent years has been uh, the displacement crisis uh, involving Assyrians. You know, don't quote me on these numbers, but we're upwards of you know five, six, seven million Syrians have been internally displaced, uh, displaced within the borders of their own country, and about an equivalent number have been um, uh, are refugees outside their countries of origin. And, um, and in places like Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, and living in circumstances where the, the likelihood that many, if not most of these Assyrians who are outside the borders of their country will return, that, that likelihood is very uncertain. 
uh, none of those governments, none of the governments that are hosting them, uh, have moved forward on on serious plans to integrate these refugees into uh, the host populations. There have been some efforts uh, to provide um, opportunities to work, to provide some opportunities for status in, play, in a place like Jordan, but the relationship between the refugee communities and their hosts at best is uneasy and at worst is can be very hostile. And so we have taken the position, I have taken the position that one of the ways to encourage host countries like Jordan, like Lebanon, like Turkey, to be more generous to refugees population is to, uh, for the United States and other high-income countries to demonstrate a commitment to responsibility sharing that goes beyond simply the provision of money, but also manifested in a commitment to some degree of resettlement of these refugee communities. It is clear that resettlement in the United States will not be the solution for the majority of Syrian refugees in the world. But um, we have resettled a minuscule number of Syrians. And I think if the United States made a commitment, I, I urged several years ago that the US make a commitment to resettle about 100,000 Syrian refugees. Um, that is a drop in the bucket in terms of what the overall need for durable solutions for Syrian refugees uh, may be, but at least it would signal a willingness on the part of the United States to engage in, in, in serious um, uh, responsibility sharing. That indeed is what the government of Germany did about uh, six, seven, eight years ago. And I think it, it sent a very important signal to the world. You know, that, to my mind, the Syrian refugee situation is perhaps the most significant one in terms of the degree of, of, of human suffering um, and, and the degree of need um, uh, reflected simply in, in the numbers and the circumstances and conditions involving that population. Well, that starts to answer what was going to be my follow-up question. What needs to happen from a policy perspective for our country, for countries in Europe? I think you've already answered that in part, but is there anything else there that your organization is advocating for that feels strongly needs to happen? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think there's, on several different levels, um, there's action needs to take place. Um, uh, first, don't get me wrong. I think uh, governments that are hosting uh, refugees uh, need to do better by them, uh, whether that's Bangladesh that is hosting upwards of a million Rohingya uh, refugees uh, from Burma, um, whether that's the government of Jordan that's hosting um, Syrian refugees, whether that's the government the governments in South America that are that are hosting Venezuelans who who have had to to flee. The, the regime in Caracas. All of those governments, even if they're not in a position to provide, say, citizenship uh, for uh, refugees, uh, which would be sort of, you know, uh, which would reflect an intention to fully integrate refugee populations, they can at least recognize that for many of these refugee populations, the prospects of returning to their country of origin are, are slim in the best of cases. And, um, and therefore, these refugee populations in host communities need opportunities to work, to have their status regularized, to have their rights respected. So that's an important responsibility for um, host governments. And I think 
high-income governments and international organizations like the World Bank can provide significant financial assistance both to host communities and to the refugee communities so as to ease that process of acceptance. And, and that's an important responsibility that the United States and other high-income governments should undertake. But I also think that governments like the United States also has, have to do their fair share with respect to refugee resettlement. And our record with respect to refugee resettlement, the, the experience of resettled refugees in the United States has been a very positive one. Uh, they, they have strengthened our communities. They have revitalized cities in a, with an aging population as we have. They, you know, refugees, you know, make important economic contributions uh, and, and play an important role in, in the future of our own country. So I think that kind of commitment, which was very much diminished in the former administration and needs to be reestablished, um, is a very important I don't know if you're in as good of a position to answer this question, but I figured I would ask because a lot of people I'm seeing feel very sympathetic and empathetic with what's happening in Ukraine. Maybe that'll bring attention to some of these other refugee crises. And from an individual perspective, if they want to do something to help, do you have any suggestions for what people can do over here? I'm seeing a lot of wishing that they can help, a lot of donating clothes, kind of the usual things. Do you have any suggestions for what people can do? Yeah, I mean, I would say in general, donating clothing and food and other kinds of items like that, really, that would not be the way to go. Um, it's, it's not a very efficient way to provide support. I think the most tangible way a, a citizen, anyone can provide a, a, a support is to identify organizations that are doing good work and and and, and contribute to those organizations. Um, you can also there are also volunteer opportunities with organizations, uh, especially refugee resettlement organizations. There are eight or nine uh, national resettlement organizations. There may be volunteer opportunities with them. Organizations like HIAS, the International Rescue. Committee, the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services. These are resettlement organizations, and so there may be opportunities to volunteer. But if you're if you're looking for opportunities to to help financially, I would provide assistance, provide support to organizations that are doing important work. In the case of Ukraine, organizations like Caritas, like Hias, like the International Rescue Committee, providing services, and then organizations, if I may be so bold as to say. Organizations like ours who are involved in report, like Refugees International, that are involved in reporting and advocacy, because our view is the provision of services is critical, but the perspectives and policies of governments and international organizations are absolutely critical because they, they shape how the response you know, is moving forward. And so, so what we do is we do reporting and policy advocacy. And what other organizations do is, is the, the provision of services. Well, what do you think is going to happen in Ukraine going forward? Well, yeah, and now I'm going admittedly a little bit beyond my humanitarian brief. Um, but I will say that, you know, that this this war is going to end one way or another. And I and, and I think that, you know, assuming that you know, President Putin is not deposed, then he will need some sort of, of off-ramp that also meets the vital uh, concerns of the government of Ukraine. Uh, and I think that is really what diplomats uh, uh, you know, need to be negotiating. 
But in the meantime, I think the more uh, we um, shine a light on the, on the terrible abuses of, um, of, of human rights, of humanitarian law that are being perpetrated by the Russian military and the Russian government, I think the more important that is because it brings pressure to bear against the Russian government and the Russian military. And I think, frankly, whether or not they are ever held accountable, and I think they should be held accountable, but whether or not they're ever held accountable, I think that pressure from organizations like ours, from human rights organizations, is very important because I think it, it increases the likelihood that there will be some sort of negotiated outcome that meets the fundamental concerns uh, of the government and the people of Ukraine. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing, and thank you for coming and speaking with me today. This is really interesting and frightening. It's nice to hear everything that you're doing and your suggestions as well for what others can do. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I enjoy it. Podcast is a monthly interview podcast produced by the Princeton Alumni Weekly. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. You can read transcripts of every episode on our website, paw.princeton.edu. Music for this podcast is licensed from Universal Production Music.